I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine. This week, we're chatting to Sarah Leipziger. Uh, on this show, she's just released her second novel called Coming Up For Air. It is a stunningly told story all about a woman who plunges into uh, a Parisian river in the late 19th century uh, and it goes on to have a huge impact on 1950s Norway and current Canada, of all things. Uh, We talk about how lockdown has affected creativity. We've spoken about that with a few authors before, but Sarah really gets into it. She gets into the kernel, the nitty-gritty of, of what's going on, why it kind of stops you from being creative at the moment. You can also hear about the extensive research that she did for the book and why the focus of a word count doesn't really do it for her. I know that some writers, that that's a big thing for them. You know, they'll they'll work and if, you know, it's a thousand word day or a five thousand word day and that's when they'll stop. But for me, I, I don't think about that at all. Some days I might write 500 words. Some days I write I might write 4,000. It's more about um, just getting through problems, getting through a scene. I, I guess I that for me is how I would consider uh, my work day done if I've got through a scene that I wanted to complete. That is on the way with Sarah Leipziger on this week's Writer's Routine. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine. My name's Dan Simpson. This is the show where we take a look inside the working day of the most successful authors around. Uh, And this week we are supported by the fantastic folk over at Faber Academy. It's a creative writing school set up by the publishing house Faber, which means that you get expert industry level tuition from one of the main groups that publishes novels, could maybe publish your novel. What really could be a better starting point getting in at the ground floor? They run all sorts of courses across loads of different times of the day to suit you, whatever's going on. Uh, Fiction, memoir, poetry courses, they're all there for all levels. You can do a a one-day beginner's workshop. They have six-month advanced courses as well if you're a bit further down the line. Now, at the moment, everything's online, uh, so you can work it around whatever you're up to, whatever you've got going on. Everything's a bit strange and hectic at the moment. It might be like that for a little bit longer as well. So they're online courses. You can fit in to what is going on for you. Now, one of their offerings that has really caught my eye is the manuscript assessment. It helps out at whatever stage you're at. 
You can have an honest, full-on assessment over whether your work in progress has any potential at all, so you can get that cleared up nice and early. You can get pretty much an MOT of your novel as well, a full-on breakdown if it will really comb through the lot of it. And also, something that's really handy, uh, right before you send it off to an agent, you can get a submission review to make sure it's in the best possible shape to help you get it published. Now, there is so much on the website, faberacademy.co.uk, to help your work, to put it in the best place to get it published. This is expert industry-level tuition from one of the people who could end up publishing your book. And you can save money with this show too. Use the code WRITERSROUTINE21, WRITERSROUTINE21, to get a 10% discount on any online course or manuscript assessment. Use it at the checkout, head to Faber academy.co.uk as i've said they've got so much there that can help you see what tickles your fancy you've got until september to take advantage of that offer so think it through make your pick then when you are ready to check out use writer's routine 21 and you can save yourself 10 percent on any online course or manuscript assessment over at faberacademy.co.uk This week's episode of the show features the fantastic sarah leipziger a canadian in london town she's just published her second novel Her first was The Mountain Can Wait. It came out to great success. Her second, Coming Up For Air, came out initially mid-lockdown, which, I mean, with so many things over the last 12 months, slightly rained on its parade a little bit. Uh, And the paperback is out now. Uh, It's just come out, and it really deserves your attention, I think. It's It's a stunningly told story. It's all about a woman who plunges into the River Seine in the 1890s, and then her face becomes, I guess, strangely famous, really. And it massively affects things in two other timelines, in Norway and in Canada. And her face, you will know her face right now. You will have seen her face. You won't have a, probably won't have a clue who the woman is, but you will know what she looks like. And that's, I guess, the mystery at the heart of coming up for air. We talk about the research that she did for it. Also, Sarah teaches creative writing. So we chat about what she tries to, to impart with her storytelling lessons. Now, as I mentioned at the start, So many authors have said how lockdown has affected creativity. We don't need that to be told to us. I'm sure you're feeling it right now. Uh, But Sarah really tries to unpack why she thinks that's the case. What's affecting her? What's going on in her house and in her mind that maybe is stopping stories come out? That's a brilliant part of the chat, by the way, so make sure you listen right through. You can also hear how she has to get busy writing around her busy family life. And we start, as we always do, with what Sarah sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. Um, When I'm writing these days, it's at my kitchen table. So I look out at my back garden and mostly see the foxes that seem to be taking over London at the moment. There's more foxes now than there have ever been before. And that's just my observation from looking out the window. But yeah, I see uh, my kettle. My eye is usually on my kettle and the fish tank um, and a bag of recycling. (laughs) It doesn't strike me, Kitchens, as that, I guess, inspirational, a place or kind of motivational for creativity. Mm -hmm. What have you got around you that maybe helps you tap into that zone? Or perhaps you don't need it. I think it's the size of the kitchen table. I like to have all my resources around me, even if I'm not using them. I like to have a lot of books and all my notebooks around me. Um, and I think it's the, the window or the doors that are leading out onto the, the back garden. I don't have a massive garden, but I like to be able to look out onto that space. It's a good question, though. I actually have a proper desk 
and I have a stand-up desk and that's kind of at the other end of that floor. Um, but I, that's not where I want to be at the moment. It's kind of just an intuition of where I want to be. And at the moment it's in the kitchen. A couple of months from now, I'll probably be spending time at the stand-up desk when my back starts to break. But I think it's mainly the, the big table that I can spread out. Well, talk to me about that intuition then. What is it, aside from your back hurting, <laughs> what, um, what's going on in your brain? Like what feelings have you got that are leading you to this large desk at the moment? I don't know. I, the book that, that I'm writing right now, I'm really at a, at a period where I can't really go further without doing more research. Um, so even though I am trying to write, which is very difficult at the moment, I'm sure you've been talking to other people and for your own projects that you're doing. Very quickly, we have yeah. been, but I've, I've never tried to break that down. So, uh, and I am not a writer, uh, not a very professional one anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so when you sit down yeah. in the middle of the third lockdown here in the UK, and 2021, has picked up as bleakly as 2020 left us. What's like, what are you feeling when you're trying to get words down? What's happening to that creativity? Yeah, I think I'm feeling like, so the first one um, was impossible to be creative. And I'm sure you heard that from lots of people. Just, I think the uncertainty and the shock and the weirdness and having your kids at home. And it was all very much. And I don't think I wrote at all through that, through that period. This time, even though it is as hard, I just, I can't waste, I can't lose that time again, professionally and personally. So I'm trying really hard to just, to just fight through it. I mean, I've been sitting down this morning since nine o'clock trying to write and I haven't got a lot done because my brain is a little bit mush, but I can't just say, oh, well, it's locked down. It's all this stuff is going on. I just can't do it. Deadlines, deadlines are looming. Um, promises have been made. So I don't, I can't afford to kind of have that, oh, lockdown feeling again. I just have to get on with it. But it is not easy at all. It's, it's grating. <laughs> so when you are struggling, as you said, it's, it's grating, but you're trying to force yourself to do it. Is mm -hmm. there anything that's helping you? With that force, is there anything that just like helps you tap into that creative zone? Um, yeah. So if I get outside for a walk or for a run, that really helps. Um, just changing that space. So this morning, actually, I've been talking about sitting at my kitchen table, blah, blah, blah. But this morning I did move and it's just to the other room to where my stand up desk is. And that helped a lot. Just being a little bit physical and changing the space kind of shakes me up a bit and helps. Um, talk to me about the big desk. So what's on it if I were to sit on your big desk would I have any clue what you were writing with research materials maybe plot points that are all over the place so I've got quite a few notebooks some of them open some of them closed I've got some a couple of memoirs that I'm reading um, written by indigenous Canadians and I've got this really great book on growing your own flowers that's part of the research for the book I'm reading at the moment I also have, it's hard because I'm not sitting there right now. I've got my pencil case, which I love, which is full of pens that nobody's allowed to use except for me. My kids know that to even go near it is punishable by hanging. Um, and I have a little box with 
highlighters and post-its because I love making messes of the books that I'm reading for research. So, you know, if I'm using library books, obviously I don't make marks, but if it's my own books, uh, I very freely mark them up, fold them over, write in them, scribble, all that stuff. I was speaking to another author the other day, um, oh, Kate Moss, who did Labyrinth and, oh, and, wow, and, yeah. and those yeah. books, and she's big into her research as well. Yeah. Um, so how, how, how do you do it? Like, um, if you're, a bit, there's extensive research in the new book coming up for air, um, all about like the history of resuscitation and things like that. Do, yeah. you, do you kind of cast the net? Of, of what you might need to know quite wide and, and cherry pick or, or are you pretty good at knowing right I need to research this this is the yeah. book let's go for it um so that's a good question so for resuscitation and drowning that was pretty easy to be very specific um but for trying to learning about Paris at the turn of the century I mean that was insane <laughs> so I spent months in the British library for that um just, you know, reading, reading, reading. And then it got to a point, well, this is ridiculous. This is a lifetime's worth of knowledge. This is 10 lifetimes worth of knowledge. So I had to really pare back and just think like, you know, what do I need? I need to create a bit of atmosphere. I need to know enough so that it sounds like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, I went to I went to Paris, literally just to walk around the streets and get a little bit of a feel for for Paris at different times of the day, get a feel for the river, get a feel for the bridges. I spoke to one person for the Paris bit, just a um, an interior designer, just to try and help get the one of the the flats right that I described. And I also went to a workshop um, where they make molds, and that was to research the mask that features in the book. So I, I got to watch somebody making the mask of L'Encanu de la Seine from the mold, which was really cool. Um, I prefer, I really prefer research hands-on that way, talking to people and going places. I get really bored sitting in a library reading. I'm not very good at that. Um, and I've learned, I've discovered over the years that people who are really knowledgeable in certain subjects, they absolutely love to talk about it and they'll give you their time and they're so generous and so interesting. Um, so I also spoke to a transplant surgeon for this book, which was really fun. And I got to meet people who either live with or have family members who have lived with cystic, cystic fibrosis. That was amazing. And I think, I don't know, for me, I feel that yields the best information talking to people. Why is it important though, Sarah? I mean, when you're setting a book in, you know, 19th century paris mm -hmm. why is it important to accurately accurately reflect how that was today why can't what why aren't readers just kind of allowing writers i guess the benefit of imagination mm -hmm. well i don't know how accurately i did depict it you know i i could have spent years trying to get that right and i didn't and i know that some authors do spend years trying to get it right. So there's probably people that are expert on that time period who are reading what I've written and thought, oh, well, she hasn't quite got that. <laughs> so I think, I don't know, I think you are, when you're writing a book, you're creating a magic spell. And the idea is for a reader to enjoy that book and for the spell not to be broken and for them not to really even 
acknowledge, oh, there's been a lot of research that's gone into this. You just want somebody to read it and believe it. So I think I think I only did enough research to pass it off, I hope. <laughs> so it sounds like I know what I'm talking about. But I, I don't know. It just I think it's it's an you're trying to create an atmosphere and you're trying to you're asking somebody to come along with you for however long, let's say it takes a week to read a book. You're asking someone to spend a week of their time with you. So you do want to create something that feels at least feels to them believable and that they can trust you and they can trust the story that you're telling them. Well, in regular life, it's get up with the kids, get them off to school. And then I've got from nine until three um, to write. And I probably would write from nine until lunchtime have some lunch. And then if there's still, if I can still feel creative and productive, try and fit another hour in after that. But I don't, you know, I'm not there at my desk from nine until three o'clock writing. And back when life was normal, I had two days a week that I could do that. Three days sometimes. At the moment, things are very different, obviously. So um, I'm trying to get up at 5.30 to write because as soon as my children get up it's it's not possible um my elder two are are pretty self-sufficient but i have an 11 year old and he 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 need he needs me through the day i could sit him in front of the television all day and go upstairs and lock myself in my bedroom and write but i i just can't do that i feel awful doing that so at the moment I'm trying to write between 5.30 and 8 o'clock in the morning. Um, and it's difficult. <laughs> it's, it's, if, I, if I've had a good night's sleep, it works really well. And actually, I've realized if you create a nice space for yourself, it's really lovely being up that early. So I'll light a candle. I'll make a cup of tea. I'll try and make the space inviting and, and a space where I want to be, even though I'd rather be in my bed. And once my brain switches on, it's quite good. That's quite a radical change of processes through the day. How are you finding mm-hmm. your energy being different? And I don't, I don't really mean, you know, you're obviously knackered, so your energy is probably mm-hmm. quite low for a quite a substantial portion of it. I just mean, I guess the way the ideas flow in the morning, how you find yourself working, how is that different from when you had hours to yourself in the middle of the day? Mm-hmm. It's actually really good. When my kids were little, when they were really small, I used to get up that early to write anyway. So I'm used to it. This isn't a new thing for me. And my brain is is most switched on in the morning. I'm just finding it a little bit harder to get out of bed, you know, when the kids were little. Let's say that was 10 years ago. Things have changed. <laughs> I think, and I'm sure a lot of people can sympathize with this, just the, the anxiety that everybody's living with at a much more raised level than normal. I think anxiety is very fatiguing. I don't know if fatiguing is a word, but it takes a lot out of people and it takes a lot out of me. So I'm having to go to bed a lot earlier. I'm quite tired in the evenings and I teach, um, I teach online writing classes in the evenings too. So I've got to make sure that I'm limber for that and you know, don't arrive to these wonderful people that have signed up for these sessions. I don't want to arrive to them as a zombie that's been sapped of all my energy. So it's crazy. But the only the thing that keeps me going is that I I really feel strongly that 
we are going to be okay and this is going to pass. And, you know, I was listening to the birds in my garden this morning and just thought spring is coming and I have every faith that things are going to ease up in the spring. Um, so I can, I can carry this on knowing that it's, that it's only temporary, but there's no way I could sustain this long term. <laughs> what about the workload in the two times of the day? Um, are you able to, to, to crack out as many words in those two and a half hours as you were when you were in the uh, working to yourself? Sometimes, but not always. Yeah, I don't have a better answer than that. <laughs> do you, well, do you, how much do you concern yourself with word count? I don't at all. Yeah, I know that some writers, that that's a big thing for them. You know, they'll they'll work and if, you know, it's a thousand word day or a 5,000 word day and that's when they'll stop. But for me, I, I don't think about that at all. Some days I might write 500 words. Some days I write I might write 4,000. It's more about um, just getting through problems, getting through a scene. I, I guess I that for me is how I would consider uh, my workday done if I've got through a scene that I wanted to complete. On the days when maybe you don't manage to get through a scene and it, it comes to eight o'clock and, and the kids are up and you've only managed to get through 400 words, um, without this getting very psychoanalytical or very morbid, I'm just, I'm just wondering how, how does that make you feel for the rest of the day? Is there a sense of, of guilt that, you, you know, this is your job and you've not managed to do it? Like, t- talk me through that. Yeah, I wouldn't say guilt so much, a little bit of worry. Uh, luckily, my editor is amazing and understanding and we've chatted about deadlines and we've made some changes. Um, but I do feel resentful sometimes, this whole situation. I don't blame anybody. I don't blame, I don't kind of like focus my anger like a laser on any particular thing but this whole situation that we're all living with I feel very very resentful of it sometimes and just you know think oh you know even even this this morning the phone was ringing and I had to take the car to get it MOT you know all these stupid domestic things that keep getting in the way and I'm feeling kind of more reactive and resentful to those things that are just normal life things that in the past might not have bothered me as much. I'm, I'm more sensitive than normal. And I think that would be that feeling would be shared by lots of people listening to this. And, and at 5.30, if you've got problems to solve, because that part of your workday now is, is so condensed mm-hmm. that you know you've got two and a half hours and then, you know, that's kind of this done for the day. Mm-hmm. How do you know what you need to tackle that morning? I suppose just from where I left off the day before. Like, so at the moment, um, I've, been <laughs> I've been writing a chapter for uh, a month, probably. <laughs> just one chapter. And it ke- I keep having to stop and go back and I'm not happy with it. And I mean, it's not, it's, things are not flowing beautifully and romantically at the moment. It's like a car that I can't quite get started. <laughs> now, um, the new novel is coming up for air. Um, but just tell us about the very first moment that the initial idea came into your head. Like, what was the the light bulb flick? How much do you remember about that? I remember it really well because it's an idea that I stole. And I was, it, this was a long time ago because I was pushing one of my children in a, pram I think so 
it was this happened when I was still writing my second or my first book. Pardon me. The idea came when I was still writing my first book, and I heard it on a podcast. Um, and it was the story of. Now I have to be really careful how I talk about this because it gives away too much. If yeah, I, it's the etern- yeah. it's the eternal problem. It's, <laughs> don't worry, we are well versed to this problem. So just talk about it as much as you're comfortable with, yeah. and um, if you feel like you've overstepped the mark, which I'm sure you won't, um, I you know just let me know and I can cut it out. Okay. Well, so I heard on a radio lab. I don't know if you've heard of the podcast Radio Lab, but yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. So they did a program on Longcanoe de la Seine, and that's the unknown woman of the Seine, and there is a death mask of of her face, uh, which is real and is very well known. Um, and the story about her is, is myth. You know, there's been a few fictional things written about her, about this woman that was pulled, pulled from the river, uh, 1890 something in Paris. And because her face was so beautiful, the legend goes that the, the, um, the pathologist at the, at the Paris morgue commissioned a death mask of her face. That is probably not true, but the death mask does exist. That crosses over, though, with a toy maker in Norway. who He was a manufacturer in the 50s and 60s, and he used her mask for probably for the design that he is most well-known for, and which I can't disclose here because that gives away the game. But just... That, this, act, that, is, that actually happened, as in that, that is, that, that, that's not yes. fiction. That's not fiction. He did, this man did, did exist, Asmund Lairdal. I changed his name in the book. He's called Peter. But uh, in real life, he did use her mask for, for one of his designs. And that design is something that we are all familiar with, you're familiar with. Everybody knows what this is. They just don't realize it. So you, you have all seen her face and possibly even touched her face, but I won't say how. So that is true. And I heard that story on Radio Lab, and just thought, wow, you know, just the way that these two things came together is fascinating. And Asmund Lairdal also had a personal story in his life uh, regarding his son, which also slots into to this story very beautifully. So I, yeah, I just had a look. Um, I spoke to a lot of people that I knew who are avid readers. Hey, have you ever read anything about this? Have you ever read any kind of fiction around this? Nobody had. I couldn't believe that it hadn't been turned into a novel already. So I started thinking about it. Uh, I think I was still finishing The Mountain Can Wait, which was my first book. And as soon as I could, I started doing research on on the mask and the story behind it, and Asmund Lairdal and his, his uh, connection to it. And then from that research, there started to take shape the themes of the book and also the possibility for a third strand. And so the third strand, which I created, that's the character of a nook and she's a storyteller uh, from Canada. That's complete fiction. And actually everything, you know, all of, all of Lon Canoe's narrative is complete fiction because that's come from my head. The biggest names in tennis are coming to Paris for the most anticipated Roland Garros in years. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. 
Experience three weeks of unparalleled tournament access as the world's top players in tennis face off against each other. Will the veteran champions continue their dominance or will a fresh face emerge to challenge their legacy on the clay courts? Daily live coverage of this epic showdown begins Monday, May 20th. Don't miss a matchup. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Got lots more from Sarah Leipziger for you in just a sec. Stay there very quickly before we crack on. Let me remind you of just the ways that you can help support the show if you have learned, I guess, anything in the last kind of 150 episodes that has uh, maybe helped the way that you tell your stories and how you get them down on paper. Uh, You can support us at Patreon, which is uh, probably the the most helpful thing that you can do for us with with cold, hard cash. Patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Just a couple of dollars or so, a couple of quid a month really helps us carry on bringing you chats with the greatest authors around as often as we can we've done uh, apart from over christmas we've done pretty much every friday and i'd love to see that carry on if you would to patreon.com forward slash writers routine is where you need to go every little really does help there i promise and i know it's been a tough year so whatever you can spare is amazingly appreciated and uh, you can get little bits of merch for doing that you get our eternal thanks there is also a way for your novel to sponsor this show If your book came out during lockdown, a little bit like Sarah's, and uh, it didn't have the fanfare that it was due, uh, I can give that to you. Uh, I I can give it the big plug that I'm sure your book deserves. Patreon.com forward slash writers routine is where you need to go. You can also give us a follow on Twitter. We are at writers pod there. And if you listen through uh, Apple podcasts uh, on an iPhone or anything like that, uh, it would be really handy if you subscribed to the show and left us a review while you're there. And, and generally, uh, just listening. Listening really helps out the show. So thanks very much for that. Let's get back to it then with Sarah Leipziger talking about her brand new novel, It's Coming Up for Air. It's all about the suspected suicide in 1890s Paris, which has strange repercussions uh, on events across the world forevermore. In this part, we talk through how she went about describing Paris, one of the most described cities on the planet. How did she do that in a in a taller, unique way? Uh, we run through that. Also, uh, you can find out how she gets through the muddle of the middle of the book. And we pick things up, uh, talking through the separate timelines of the story. Uh, as I mentioned, it's set across Paris, Norway and Canada, uh, across three different eras. And we talk about how she thought through keeping them all connected. That was a struggle throughout. Um, So I suppose the connection between Lairdal and Lon Canoe is very much, you know, 
swimming, water, drowning, and this idea of, I'm just trying to word this properly. I'm really interested in this object, this mask that continues to tell a story long after the people who were involved have died. And it is, incre- it is incredible, by the way, as in when you make that connection, when, when you know, talking around the subject, yeah. when you make that connection between now what her face is used for mm-hmm. and how she died, yeah. I mean, that poetry that kind of is 60 years apart is phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, it's so cool, isn't it? <laughs> this is why I couldn't believe like that there hasn't been all kinds of stuff written. There's, there has been a lot, but not very well, not very well known. Um, but yeah, so this object that just continues to tell a story long after she's gone. And, and I guess the idea of storytelling and it's a story that keeps things alive. And once, once, and that's the same for all of us, right? Like once you're gone and once all the people who have remembered you are gone and there's no more stories about you, then you really are gone. That's when you're dead, when no one's talking about you anymore. So just this idea of kind of perpetual story going on and on and on, that's what excited me. And that's what, that's what gave birth to Anouk, the third character, because it hints, and I don't think this is giving the book away, but it does hint at the end that she is going to kind of reignite this story and keep it going and perpetuate it. And it's interesting, I know that this is quite open-ended and it might be quite hard for you to answer, but that, that kind of idea of, continuing someone's legacy when they're they're gone is um is fairly philosophical how are you making that translate into a page turning plot that spans uh like 400 odd pages for a reader Uh, well i think and i hope that just getting the answer because so there are there's quite a few links within the three strands very quiet links that link these people together without them realizing it. And it's those little links that I hope readers are picking up on because it's not obvious at all, probably for the first half of the book, how these three strands are connected. And I don't know, I could be shooting myself in the foot here and maybe you should cut this out, but any of the criticism that I've had has been, oh gosh, I just couldn't see it, you know? so some people have found, and I'll say most readers have found that really cool because when you do find out at the end what the link is, it's just like, oh, wow. And that's, that's what I wanted, that satisfying moment of, oh, my gosh, this is how it all comes together. Some people, though, found that, found that difficult and, and were critical of that. But I'm hoping that that is what keeps people turning pages, is trying to get to, to the answer as to how all these things are linked. And within that, there, like I said before, there are these little hints. Um, they almost refer to each other without realizing that they're referring to each other. Um, there's one bit where Peter's wife is is telling a story to the children. And the story, the character that she's created in her story, and this is, you know, 1950s in Norway, this character that she's created is actually describing a nook who's the Canadian character um, in the 80s in Canada. So there's just these little things that I hope people pick up on. There's lots of little things like that. Um, how much do you know about this story before you start that very first sentence? You've done all your research. Um, how much do you know about the overall trip that this story will take us on? That's a really good question. I know the destination 
but I don't know how I'm going to get there. <laughs> and it might sound really, really, really hokey, but I put a lot of faith in my characters leading me there. They'll tell me they'll tell me what to do. <laughs> no, it doesn't sound hokey at all. Quite often on the show, a writer will describe um, their plot as as a kind of a roadmap. So they might know their destination. I guess then the question is, when when are things coming clear through the windscreen to you as a writer? Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I think at the beginning, things, things seem quite clear. And then you get to the middle. And it, you've probably heard a lot of people talking about this. The middle is the muddle. And you get to this awful middle bit where you feel like you've completely lost your way and you're dragging your heels. And it's that feeling of trying to run in a dream, you know, where your your feet kept, keep getting stuck and you can't gain momentum. And uh, it's a real difficult part of, of the book, I think, because you, I don't know, I guess you've left, you, you've left home if we're going to stay with the, with the journey metaphor. It's too late to turn back. <laughs> you, you can only go forward and you can't really see where you're going. Um, and then you kind of, you fight through that middle bit. It's that hump, you get over it. And for both of the books I've written now, that home stretch is fantastic because you really, you can see the end. So I would say when, it's, when you're two thirds through, it's starting to become clear. Although it does seem clear at the beginning when you've got all that potential and you're still in the honeymoon phase and you're totally in love and it's all beautiful and wonderful and you haven't really seen all the problems yet. But then it, yes, then it darkens and then it clears up again towards the end. I was aware that that I was describing um, one of the most written about cities on the planet in one of the most written about eras in the planet. <laughs> I was, I was painfully aware of that so again I wanted to just stick to to the bits that were important to the story and so it was Lon Canoe's experience of Paris that that was in this book not the entire world's experience so her experience is is Madame de Borde's flat the river and being um kind of amused and bemused by the spectacle and the streets of Paris uh so I think I mean, the que uh, your question is how how was I trying to be creative with this, or is that right? Or oh, okay, okay. Uh, okay. 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 <laughs> That's okay. Well, I hope I didn't, I, I hope that I just rendered those places um, in as, with as much truth um, and validity as I could so that just within that, just trying to get them right for themselves, there would have been enough difference between them and probably more in the voice of the characters I think that's where I really thought about, okay, how does, how would, how does Long Canoe's voice sound like? What does Peter's voice sound like? And what does Anouk's voice sound like? And those are probably where I was thinking about the differences the most. And how are you getting into these voices? I mean, with Long Canoe, um, her identity was never discovered. So mm -hmm. I know you've done a lot of research. We've spoken about that. But how are you getting into the mindset of your someone who was there but wasn't there almost and and mm -hmm. the other characters how are you differentiating those in your mind 
again, hokey answer, but I think, you know, when you research the time period a little bit and you research their lives a little bit, you hope that their voices just start to come alive within your head. And I can tell you the experience of when a character's voice, when I can't hear it in my head, it's very grueling and everything that comes out comes onto the page feels like I'm just blagging. It doesn't feel true. It doesn't feel real. It feels like I'm this feels like I'm inventing it or making it up. Whereas if you can hear if you can hear the voice really well in your head, it feels like you're just scribing it, like you're the radio. <laughs> And lastly, well, pretty much lastly, um, because I didn't ask this during the day, which was very remiss of me. um, (laughs) Our listeners want to know software and font opinions. So, okay, okay, okay. (laughs) What are you you writing on and what what do you write? How does your writing look on the screen? I love that question. (laughs) Um, I have been using Scrivener for the past 10 years. Oh, maybe not 10 years, but many years. Scrivener. Have you heard of Scrivener? Yeah, they sponsor the show many times, so I'm very thankful oh, for that okay. answer. <laughs> okay, Scrivener. Okay, yeah, they're great. You have your, your chapters and your scenes down one side of the screen, and you've got all your notes and little post-its and everything down the other side of the screen. So when I'm on Scrivener, I feel like my writing is in front of me, and all the the peripheral crap is next to me, even though it's all on the screen. So yeah, Scrivener. And I'm just a Times New Roman kind of girl. Times New Roman the whole way through? Yeah, whole way through. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sarah, look, this has been an absolute joy. Um, thank, th- you. thank you so much for joining us. Great. Thanks, Dan. It's been fantastic. That is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you so much to Sarah Leipziger for coming on the show. Uh, you can get a copy of her brand new novel, Coming Up For Air, in the podcast notes wherever you're listening and at writersroutine.com. Uh, as I say, it's her second novel. The initial release was slightly hampered through lockdown uh, and it's a stunning story. It really is beautifully told. It's well worth you picking up a copy. You can do that. Podcast notes where you're listening and at writersroutine.com. Uh, while you're on there, you can get in touch with the show as well. Use the contact form over there. Next week, we are chatting to Nick Petrie, all about his sixth Peter Ash novel. It's called The Breaker. In the meantime, if you want to support the show, you can do that over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. You can leave a review wherever you're listening. And you can also give us a follow on Twitter. We are at writers pod there. And I will see you next week with Nick Petrie on the show. Bye. The biggest names in tennis are coming to Paris for the most anticipated Roland Garros in years. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled tournament access as the world's top players in tennis face off against each other. Will the veteran champions continue their dominance or will a fresh face emerge to challenge their legacy on the clay courts? Daily live coverage of this epic showdown begins Monday, May 20th. Don't miss a matchup. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.